One of the most interesting developments that's taking place among healthcare leaders today is the extent to which they're learning what's required of them in a dramatically changing environment pretty much on the fly. And by that I mean that leaders are figuring out the skills and mindsets and behaviors necessary by doing most of all. It's a bit of necessity being the mother of mother of invention here, but not surprisingly, if you start investigating what this looks like across some of the most forward-thinking organizations delivering healthcare today, patterns and best practices emerge. IHI and a team of experts are in the process of harnessing this information in order to spread it more broadly. And we're going to get a preliminary look at what they're learning on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. As many of you know, we come to you bi-weekly and also for later listening and convenience, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So there's nothing cookie cutter about leading a large system or an ACO today, but there is a way to cull from the experiences of some of the best and come up with a framework, a mindset, and an impressive list of new high-impact leadership behaviors. So that's where we're headed, thanks to a great panel we've assembled. And I'm the one who always loves to remind people to tweet if you feel like it and are so inclined. Um, at the IHI is IHI's Twitter handle, and we hope you'll consider uh, either during or after the show uh, sharing some comments. I'm going to now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that there are longer bios uh, and information about all these folks on IHI.org as well as some of their own organization's websites. First, let me welcome Dr. Lee Sachs, who's responsible for clinical support services, information systems, risk management, insurance, Research and Medical Education and Clinical Laboratory Services at Advocate Healthcare in Downers Grove, Illinois. He also serves as Chief Executive Officer, excuse me, of the ACO Advocate Physician Partners. Welcome, Lee. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Thanks. Welcome to WIHI. Also on the phone is Dr. Gary Yates, who's president of the Centera Quality Care Network and the former senior vice president and chief medical officer for Centera Healthcare. He also serves as president of Healthcare Performance Improvement, HPI. Great to have you with us, Gary. Great to be with you today, Madge. Thank you. Okay. Here in the studio, right across from me, is Derek Feely, who joined IHI as an executive vice president in September. Just before that, Derek was director general for health and social care and chief executive of the National Health Service NHS in Scotland. He now has responsibility for driving IHI strategies across five core focus areas. Welcome, Derek. Thank you, Madge. Good to be here. All right. And one more person on the phone, last but never least, is Andrea Capsonell. She's a vice president at IHI who's on the research and development team and leads major IHI initiatives. Currently, that includes leadership for improvement and building effective networks to foster innovation and regional health. And welcome and thank you, Andrea, for being with us today. Thank you. Well, as you said, we learned early that leadership was important. It matters a great deal. Everybody knows that uh, if there's nobody steering the ship to safety, it's not so hard to run up a ground on the rock. Um, And we also learned in healthcare that it's not just the senior executives, although they have a great deal of leverage, but it's leaders at all levels in in healthcare. Um, And uh, so we built some 
very useful knowledge that we integrated into all of our programs and are used very widely now to good effect. Um, but uh, everyone also knows that uh, the changes in healthcare having to do with payment organization and structure um, have um, have made a different environment for us. So the knowledge that we had that was very helpful before, um, while while strong, needs more. Um, and as many people have heard the phrase volume to value in the transitions in, in healthcare in the U.S., um, those words contain mammoth changes for the system. And um, I I'm very sure that in other regions, similar major transformations are now underway. And if you're going to steer the ship, you need to be very good at knowing what the ship is and what the seas are in. And we're in some different seas now. Um, and so if you think about what's come up in, in the healthcare world, uh, around the world, there's some new challenges at hand. There are new stakeholders. There's a new and much better focus on the population and not just patients. Um, there's even a new view about how much change is going to be needed in order to do well. And for that, uh, leaders need some different skills, some different approaches, um, if we're going to be able to make the jump to the system that we need. Um, many of you are very aware of the growth of accountable care organizations, ACOs, as one uh, way to solve some of the problems in healthcare. They present a perfect example of the kind of situation where the old leadership skills that were really solid when you were running a hospital, even a big academic medical center, now need some brushing up and we need to, to build some talents and abilities and support for leaders that are taking on these uh, these new challenges. And so about a year ago, a small group of us began exploring in earnest what the leaders who effectively lead transformation actually do. And that's what we're going to talk about here. Um, I'm going to just uh, ask one more quick follow-up question before we move over to Gary Yates, which is if you had to kind of quick quickly, I guess, encapsulate uh, the kind of leadership ideas that IHI has put forth uh, up till now and sort of the, the pivot that we're trying to make right now, how would you describe, the, the, is there, are there a couple things that really differentiate what we're trying to put forth now versus what we have been? Uh, yes, I would say the leadership behaviors before had to do with what leaders did within the organization to focus uh, very strongly on quality and safety and raise awareness um, and engage the board. And those things are still important, but now that we're reaching across boundaries and organizations in, um, that are delivering health care include physicians, community agencies, strong relationships and partners, we need to uh, be able to think and lead across boundaries and think about the cultures that we have. And maybe most important is that the understanding that the patients and the community and the people that we serve are really the key uh, to the to some of the biggest problems that we have. And leaders need to be able to uh, learn how to take advantage of all the 
talents and skills at their hand, at hand and lead the organization into being much more patient and community-centered. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks, Andrea. All right, Gary Yates, we're going to move over to you. You've been part of this exploration uh, with some others here at iChai and some other organization. Um, so tell us about um, what you went in search of and <laughs> who you sought out uh, to begin to kind of put some shape uh, as to what leaders how, what leaders need to be thinking about, the mindset, the behavior, some of those things that I uh, just alluded to. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Madge. Um, well, as Andrea mentioned, our starting point was uh, to answer a question, you know, what do the most effective leaders do to successfully transition their organization through dramatic change, such as moving from value ba- volume-based uh, payment system to a value-based payment system? And then our goal was to harvest the knowledge from these successful leaders. Um, Altogether, we interviewed a total of 13 uh, CEOs and CMOs from organizations who were well into their journey and regarded as leaders in organizations that maybe others uh, could learn from. Um, We also had the opportunity to get input from from Don Berwick. We did this through a combination of uh, an expert meeting and individual interviews. And um, a lot of the distillation of this will actually be coming out in an IHA white paper, which should be available uh, hopefully in the first part of December, um, which will um, uh, encapsulate and, and summarize some of the findings that were here. Uh, how we went about this was um, in interviews and in the meeting, uh, a series of open-ended questions to try to stimulate discussion and sharing. We were really looking for, as Andrea said, um, examples of specific actions that these leaders took or specific behaviors that they exhibited. So some of the questions included things like, um, how did they uh, build a vision for a change of this magnitude? How did they manage conflict within the organization, uh, engage the board of directors, address issues with uh, financial uncertainties with the change in these uh, payment compensation models? How did they manage the pace of change? How did they partner align with physicians? Um, How did they identify new competencies that were needed for the organization to be successful and what were their biggest obstacles? From uh, these interviews, uh, some common themes emerged uh, that uh, some that weren't that surprising but very instructive. For example, um, what we identified in, in really each and every case was that these leaders had been very intentional and thoughtful um, about the approach to change management in the organization. So these leaders spent time uh, developing a vision, um, and not just for themselves, but engaging the rest of the leadership team, physicians, and the board. So in a way, all were sort of learning together, and it's very common to hear these leaders say that uh, we didn't know all the answers at the outset, um, but we learned through together this idea of leadership as a team sport, and it's important to engage um, leaders throughout the organization. Um, we also uh, notice as a very common theme, personal leadership. So these leaders, CEOs, CMOs, were, were very intentional um, about uh, being out, being visible, oftentimes delivering the message themselves multiple times to different audiences, um, and being careful in terms of the messages that they were sending. Uh, they thought about what they said, how they spent their time, in some cases, who they promoted, and how they managed some of the other pieces along the way. Uh, These leaders spent time building consensus, um, managing the pace of change. It was interesting, each of these leaders articulated that they had to be careful that they and understand how much change the organization could take at once and where they were. Each of them had different ways to do that. There wasn't a science, um, but this idea as a leader managing and observing and monitoring the pace of change was key. 
and all of these uh, leaders uh, along the way placed a, a premium on physician engagement and created vehicles for physician alignment. I believe Lee's going to talk a little bit more about that approach at Advocate. Now, one thing which was a little surprising was um, uh, in, in many cases we heard that the board of directors really required um, additional education and additional work to bring along. Um, and so um, the, these initiatives seem to be very much uh, senior management driven and, and this idea of, of engaging the board to get them in a position where they could help lead um, was uh, in um, one case actually identified as an obstacle along the way but one that they overcame. Now some of the important themes are captured in the new IHI High Impact Leadership Framework. I think we had a slide up about that uh, before. We can go back uh, to it, sure. Just to capture yeah. Yeah. With, with this slide, hello. Yes, you're there. We can hear you, Gary. Are you there? I am. I am. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, you're fine. Thanks. Good. Good. So here is the uh, high impact leadership framework. Uh, where leaders need this is where leaders need to uh, focus their efforts. And um, if uh, those of you are familiar with IHI's leadership framework, uh, will remember the familiar you know building will, developing capability, and delivering results. Um, this group actually pushed uh, several changes here. Some. Andrea uh, mentioned um, this idea of being driven by the persons and community, the community at the center, um, the notion of um, spending time creating the vision, shaping the culture, and this notion of boundarylessness, looking beyond the current system for partners, as well as uh, looking um, beyond, uh, sort of out of the box for new paradigms that were there. Um, finally, uh, this group uh, helped to identify a list of high impact leadership behaviors uh, to help answer the question, what do leaders do to make a difference? And a couple of these, uh, number one, being person-centered in word and deed. Again, this idea of being a visible role model. Uh, being an authentic presence at the front line and a visible champion. Um, having a relentless focus on the vision and strategy. Uh, championing and requiring transparency throughout the organization about results, progress, defects, challenges. And again, this notion of boundarylessness, uh, both thinking outside the box as well as thinking outside the organization. So, um, Madge, that's a quick summary of okay. some of our findings. Let right. me stop there and turn it back to you. Thank you so much, Gary. And um, I um, I love the fact that we all, boundarylessness is a really interesting <laughs> word to say <laughs> quickly. I, I, I empathize with that. Thanks, Gary, for that quick summary. And I do want to underscore uh, the slide that's up on the screen now, IHI High Impact Leadership Framework. It is part uh, of a white paper that will be out in early December. Promise the WIHI audience uh, you'll uh, will get you more information about that, but uh, look for this material on our website in um, early mid-December uh, at the very latest. Um, and we're, we're, this is kind of an early preview of some of the thinking behind it and, um, and the, the types of things that um, Andrea and Gary have just been talking about. Now, one of the leaders, of course, who helped, informed, uh, helped inform the kinds of things Gary is just talking about is Lee Sachs. And uh, Lee, why don't you, t I'm curious, if you actually um, thought about some of the things you were doing uh, differently as new <laughs> and, and worthy of landing uh, in, in a white paper. Um, what, what was going on uh, at Advocate uh, that began to sort of push uh, leadership in a new direction? Thanks, Lee. Well, listening to, to Gary, it kind of... Uh you know, spun my memory back to really appreciating that this is a journey of learning. 
Um, and I think uh, as we moved from uh, volume to value, there, there was a deep appreciation that we were moving into uncharted territory uh, and that, that we needed to learn. But maybe first I ought to, uh, for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with Advocate, give a, a thumbnail uh, because I always come back to the fact that healthcare is local and while we're different and our market's different, there probably are things that people uh, listening can relate to in, in their market. So Advocate Healthcare is a faith-based uh, delivery system, the largest system in Illinois, uh, mostly centered in Metro Chicago, but we have two hospitals in central Illinois, about 150 miles southwest, actually the area where the tornadoes hit on Sunday and six of our associates uh, lost their homes and uh, we cared for a lot of uh, victims of the damage. But we're 12 hospital campuses. Uh, we're two uh, medical groups that total about 1,400 employed physicians. Uh, we range from a critical access hospital in Eureka, Illinois, to three major teaching hospitals in Metro Chicago. Uh, in one uh, multi-campus uh, children's hospital. Uh, Advocate Physician Partners, which dates back to 1995, uh, is a physician hospital organization uh, that initially started doing capitated managed care uh, and then moved in to uh, pay for performance and clinical integration and now is the chassis for our uh, ACO. Uh, Besides the hospitals and medical groups, Advocate has a, a home health company with the full spectrum of services ranging from hospice and palliative care to skilled nursing and infusion, and we're financially strong uh, with, with that. But we're in a fragmented market. Uh, we are the largest uh, delivery system with market share of about 18% in contrast to many of your markets where dominant systems could have 25, 35% uh, uh, market share uh, with, with that. Uh, we're on a, a dramatic journey. Uh, in 2010, 82% of our revenue uh, came from fee-for-service uh, and a small amount was from global capitation. We're anticipating in 2014 uh, that only 24% of the revenue is going to come from fee-for-service uh, and virtually all the rest is going to be in some form of capitation or shared savings arrangement between uh, our Medicare shared savings program, our commercial ACO, and the state of Illinois is starting a, a Medicaid shared savings program that will kick off uh, on July 1 uh, and create the same type of, of alignment for uh, Medicaid uh, beneficiaries. So we started this journey uh, in the spring of 2010, literally a month after uh, President Obama signed uh, the Affordable Care Act with a routine conversation between myself, our system CEO, and the relatively new leadership of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, talking about the implications of reform and how we could work together uh, and kind of committing to learn together uh, about what the changes were going to lead to. And over the course of several months, that led to an agreement that we would start a commercial ACO uh, with Blue Cross, which is the dominant payer in our marketplace. So today we have uh, 
over 350,000 lives between the capitated HMO and the uh, PPO uh, plan, which, which is what we call the ACO, where we have a uh, shared savings arrangement. Uh, we continue to participate in Medicare Advantage, although our market uh, is really underpenetrated. I think nationally, uh, 25, 27% of Medicare beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage. In Metro Chicago, that's at 14%, and it hasn't changed in the last 10 years, uh, although we think that, that it will going forward. Um, in uh, January of 2012, we created a new advocate employee benefit plan called the Advocate Centered Plan uh, with benefit plan design uh, deliberately to uh, keep care within our network. Uh, and uh, that's the fastest growing choice of our employees, in particular among the new hires. So it's giving us uh, some experience with a benefit plan design aligned with the ACO. And then we started uh, in the Medicare Shared Savings Program in July of uh, 2012, so we're a year and a half in, and we're probably the largest participant with approximately 120,000 uh, attributed lives in Medicare. Uh, and we're estimating, based on the data the state has sent us, that we'll have uh, roughly 250,000 Medicaid, and these are mostly uh, uh children and uh, women of childbearing age, because that's the focus of our state right now uh, in what they're calling the Medicaid ACE or Accountable Care Entity uh, Program that'll start uh, next July. So four years ago, we were in a volume paradigm, more is better, uh, and suddenly, you know, the world has turned upside down, and how do you uh, budget, how do you allocate capital, how do you uh, make your tactical plans? and how do you focus the delivery system. Uh, Advocates uh, Strategic Framework, which was developed by our board in 2008, and it was the first time that they did more than a three-year strategic plan. They looked out to 2020 and called it uh, the 2020 Framework. It's all based on strong physician engagement. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate uh, is that it's the culture that creates the strong physician engagement. Um, I'm not a social scientist, and I probably would have failed a multiple choice test to define culture until fairly recently, uh, but I've come to appreciate that culture is the way an organization does its business, and it's fairly predictable. And we've created a robust culture of physician engagement by having a shared governance model, which is what Advocate Physician Partners, in effect, is, uh, while from legal structure it's a partnership it's the ability to share in governance and lead the delivery system uh, side by side, the clinicians and system management. Uh, it's the infrastructure that we've created to help our physicians, both employed and independent, uh, perform as a highly integrated uh, group, things like disease registries, electronic health records, practice coaches, uh, care managers becoming accredited as patient-centered medical homes, et cetera. Uh, it's the incentives, and the incentives really were the catalysts that started things going and got the attention, uh, but moving towards uh, quality and safety and more efficiency becomes self-sustaining. Transparency of results is, is critical, and that was a journey uh, that started uh, with results 
two physicians and then the ability for them to compare their results to others that were blinded in over a series of years getting to the point where results are transparent within uh, the whole network of preparing us for the day when uh, specific uh, physician results will be transparent externally. Right now, uh, we're sharing uh, aggregate results across the whole network. And all of this is in a continuous uh, feedback loop because uh, we're learning and we're making mid-course corrections in, in real time uh, with, with that. Uh, it, it feels like since we uh, left off the edge of the cliff when we made the decision to move into the ACO, uh, that the, the clock is moving four times as fast. Uh, but it's an exciting and challenging time, and I think all of us have seen uh, the positive impact that this is having on patients in our community. Okay, wow. All right, lots of good stuff there, Lee, and I think it ties in, again, to a lot of the themes, uh, including the sort of learning, uh, the, the sort of learning by doing and sort of the, the culture issues and the constant uh, feedback loop in terms of the uh, both the outlook and dealing with a very, very different external environment, as uh, many of uh, your visuals here have helped provide. So um, I'm going to turn now to Derek Feely, IHI's executive. Executive uh, Vice President, uh, straight from Scotland, lucky for us and I think uh, the country here. Um, and uh, we're going to a lot of wonderful shared learning. Uh, so I was uh, telling Derek I listened to and read a transcript of an interview that one of our staff did with Derek. And one of the things that he talked about was inclusivity uh, and uh, leadership authenticity and visibility, kind of other words, I think, that describe some of what's going to be in this white paper. And he said that leadership is not an individual thing, it's a group thing. And I think Lee was just really talking about that. So um, Derek, you're on and uh, share with us some of your thoughts about leadership from uh, where you've been and where you are now. Welcome. Thanks, Madge. So leadership is a group thing. (laughs) Um, So if you just reflect on what you've been hearing from uh, Andrea and Gary and Lee and how challenging that agenda is going to be um, to be the successful leaders of future improvement. Um, You're going to have to build will. You're going to have to put yourself in patients' shoes. You're going to have to engage uh, within and across your organisations. You're going to have to shape culture. Um, You need to be some kind of paragon to be able to do all of those things yourself. Uh, And so my sense is that the successful leaders of the future will be the ones who build successful leadership teams uh, within their organizations, who are uh, comfortable with complexity and generous with power, um, and who are part of broader leadership networks that extend beyond their organizations. And I think these two quotes that we've just put up from Warren Bennis, who's my favorite um, writer on leadership. Uh, sum up for me the, what's, at the really, what's at the very heart of what leaders will need to do in the future. So getting people to want to do the right thing. Firstly, so people need to understand what the right thing is um, and uh, need to want to do it. That's the building will part. And I see there's been some chat about building will. We might come back to that um, match. Uh, But that second quote, I think, is really um, what I was trying to say when I was talking about leadership being a group thing. 
Good leaders make people feel that they're at the very heart of things, not at the periphery. Everybody, everyone is a, it's a that's a really important word in that phrase. Everyone feels that he or she makes a difference to the success of the organisation. People feel centred. They have meaning in their work. Uh, and that sense of meaning and indeed joy in their work, I think, is uh, what you get if you treat leadership as a group thing rather than uh, put your leaders on a pedestal. Um, two other things I wanted just to touch on, if I may. So the first is the importance of culture in all of this. It's come up a few times, I think, that the, the need uh, to think about the creating a culture of excellence uh, as you go about this work. Um, and two things I just wanted to say about that. Firstly, there's a very strong evidence base for this, that the, the, the successful leaders um, pay attention to culture and behaviours in their organisations. Uh, this is a well-studied um, area of work and there's a good evidence base. And secondly, there are a few things that are key if you're going to try and um, move the culture in your organisation. Uh, the first is set a big, audacious aim. Uh, secondly, make sure that your behaviours um, reflect the culture. The, the worst thing in the world is to um, articulate a culture and then not behave in a way that's consistent with that culture. Um, make sure you've got some supports for those behaviours and then make sure your leaders are consistent in the way in which they go about their business. Um, and I think it does require us to take a different kind of mindset. And it's a mindset, I think, that's, a, that's about a shift from thinking about the challenges of the future in, a, in what I've called in that slide deficits thinking mode. So seeing the problem and trying to figure out how to fix it and um, uh, doing things to people in an, in an effort to, think it, uh, to, to fix it and then um, failing to trust people to make decisions or to take control. And we have to move to a much more assets-based approach to leadership, I think, where um, we build on the strengths that we have in the whole organisation and beyond into the community. Um, we feel as if we're all in this together. We invest in engaging with people inside and outside the organisation, and we give people control and power. All right. Thank you so much, um, Derek. And I think for as we get into questions uh, and commentary and some discussion, um, you know, we can elaborate on all of this. And um, and I do hope, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to sort of tap into Derek's experience also as a leader in Scotland and uh, application of lessons there uh, that can be helpful as we move forward um, here in the U.S. And for those of you who are going to the forum, I do hope you have an opportunity to engage with him as well as Maureen and others. So the chat has, uh, thank you, Derek. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Gary and Lee. We are just giving everyone kind of a taste of some things that do get uh, elaborated on in the white paper coming out in December. Appreciate your patience. Here's a, a question that I'm just going to uh, nip in the bud, I hope. Laurel Simmons, hello out there, who has been talking about <laughs> fee-for-service population management. I think it's Lee who may have used that term. So, Lee, you're on because a lot of people want to make sure they understood what do you mean by that concept, that term. Lee, are you there? Let me... 
Yeah, let me make sure I understand the question. You <laughs> the fee-for-service population management that was in your reimbursement model is shifting slide. Everyone wants, uh, several people want to understand what is that a term? What does that mean? What does that encompass? So that, that's the term we're using for the, our commercial ACO, which is uh, built on a PPO benefit plan. So in, in the genesis of it was the frustration of the misaligned incentives that our hospitals get uh, actually get paid per diem, our doctors get paid uh, piecework uh, for, for the work they do uh, on that, and uh, the benefit plan allows patients, much like Medicare, to seek care from any physician or provider uh, in the service area because everybody participates with Blue Cross. So similar to the Pioneer and Medicare Shared Savings Program, uh, uh, we have an attribution logic and uh, we're accountable for the outcome, safety, and service for the attributed patients and for the financial performance and to the extent that we can outperform the marketplace, uh, we share in the savings. So we've, this is the, the biggest uh, benefit plan in, in our market and it's 29% of advocates revenue. So it was a huge leap to uh, try to get out of the more is better mentality uh, and start to focus us on uh, creating value. So in 2014, that uh, big segment of the pie includes the Blue Cross uh, shared savings and Medicare shared savings and in July it will include our new Medicaid ACE program that all will pay fee for service but are going to uh, lead to shared savings for an attributed population. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I, a lot of questions for Lee. I'm going to give him one more, then I'll come back. And I think there may be somebody on from your organization who's also helping to answer. If that's Anna, thank you. Uh, the question really was about measuring physician engagement. Um, and is it being measured? And someone named Anna uh, Winkowski says yes. Um, and it sounds like you are regularly tracking that. Uh, Lee, anything more you want to say about that? Um, I mean, we're an organization that's obsessed with, with measurement, and we've been uh, measuring physician performance and providing uh, feedback and tying it to incentives uh, going back to 2003, uh, wh whether it's uh, outcomes, process, uh, patient uh, satisfaction, safety. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that uh, we measure today is the in-network care of our attributed patients, and we're providing feedback to our primary care physicians on a monthly basis. So, big yes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Derek, question for you, and maybe, Gary, I'm curious if this came up uh, in your scan and speaking with people, this notion of uh, switching from, um, you know, deficit thinking to assets thinking, and somebody has asked a question, I mean, is this one of the problems or one of the challenges you see going on in a lot of organizations, somebody is asking, and there's a related question, which is somebody is suggesting that the medical record unto itself seems to present more of a problem-oriented uh, deficits thinking uh, foundation, uh, which, which makes some of these changes a bit harder. Uh, why don't I start with uh, Derek, since it, we'll go back to your slide here of assets versus deficits, John, and then I'll, I'll bring in Gary as well. Um, so I think, Madge, if we're correct in our assumption 
that um, the route to success in the future is going to be much um, more thinking at a system level or thinking at, at a community level, um, then you're almost required to take an assets-based approach because you're going to have to think about what are all of the assets I have at my disposal in this community. And if you're taking that approach in, uh, as a, a key aspect of your um, overarching approach to running your system, then it seems to me uh, to make sense to take a consistent approach to the way in which you engage your leadership. Um, because leaders are much more likely to take uh, an assets-based approach to delivering care uh, and to improving health if we take an assets-based approach to developing our leaders. And so I think this notion of um, co-producing leadership, of genuinely empowering leaders at all levels, of giving people um, recognition for the excellent work that they do and trusting them um, to, to make the right decisions at, at the point of care are all fundamental parts of taking a much more assets-based approach uh, and I think likely to reinforce um, that approach in, 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 into the, com the wider community. Okay, thanks, Derek. Uh, Garrick, is, do you want to add to that at all? I mean, as you sort of did your interviews, uh, did you see this kind of assets uh, thinking, deficit thinking uh, uh, divide or that sort of being one of the things uh, folks were crossing over into the new land of more assets thinking? Yeah, Madge, I think they were, although they didn't articulate it quite as clearly and as nicely as on Derek's slide. <laughs> I, I think you saw the leaders thinking about um, uh, about the things that are on there. Um, what, what comes to mind is, um, you know, when you're going about to try to, to change the culture, and Ron Heifetz has described this nicely, it's, it's a different type of change. You know, we're used to sort of technical change. We see a, a problem, whatever, we can you deal, really deal with that in a, a matter of, of maybe days or hours or weeks. But, but changing culture is an example of adaptive change, where you're actually taking the organization into a, a new range of of sort of uncertainty and distress. And, and so I, I think these leaders are thinking about, with a large change, a very challenging environment, you know, how do I move the culture along and beginning to think about using some of these, these um, um, asset-based approaches and this notion of really empowering the organization, having an authentic conversation and then harnessing the power it is really going to be uh, critical if they're going to make that adaptive change successful. So I think these leaders see that as a way to really work and begin to change the culture, which is so key for them being successful. Thanks, Gary. Um, Andrea, Michael Pugh, someone you know well, uh, is uh, mentioning that you and he are going to be uh, teaching at the upcoming forum uh, based on a lot of what we're talking about today and the white paper. Do you want to uh, say anything about that? Would you be willing? Of course. Um, we learned a lot in this last year, and um, my understanding is that there that there's a great opportunity at the forum in this mini course to share both the thinking for how we got to this idea of uh, high impact behaviors, and to get people to um, to think about how they could try them out and use them in their everyday existence. And again, it's not just senior leaders, but all kinds of leaders in all kinds of organizations. So Michael Pugh and Barbara Balick, another one of our key leadership faculty, and I will be running a mini course on the, on the mini course day at the forum. And it should be a lot of fun. We'll be 
in addition to talking about ideas, thinking about how to apply them. All right. Thanks a lot. Good mention. Thanks, Michael. I have a question really for everyone, and keep your own coming on the chat. I hope this is also relevant to what's on people's minds. Um, it's so much of what we at least uh, consume in maybe the more general media, but overall is that organizations, uh, whether going forward with an ACO or, or not, are thinking a lot about financial stability, sustainability, growth, um, making it all work uh, in the new environment. Um, Gary, I'm curious, um, where where did that fit in, in terms of new ways of thinking? Um, you know, is our finances a group thing as well um, these days? <laughs> where how, how does that, the, the money concerns and revenues and new payment models, to what degree did that come up? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it's a great question, Madge. It's actually one we asked and, and all of the interviewees addressed because uh, very high on their mind is as we're making the shift from volume-based to value-based, it's, it's possible to disrupt the current business model waiting for compensation to match the, the, the future model. And so all of them had, had thought about it. What struck me was that in most of the cases, these leaders had actually sort of taken it on straight on to the point where they had worked had finance or, or other parts of the organizations actually can construct five-year financial plans or, or longer financial plans, and they've actually begin to map what the payer environment and how that might change over time and map that against where they were going as an organization. So one thing which struck me was that these leading organizations, that their leaders are, are actively articulating not only that they are going to be making the change, but they've actually constructed timelines, and they can talk about how that will happen. So they're actually planning for, if you will, the tip. I know Lee did some of that and others um, to understand sort of how this all fits together and address that financial uncertainty um, in, a, in a pretty direct manner. Okay, thanks, Gary. Derek is furiously writing something down, so I'm going to pick on him. What do you think, Derek, about the, the finances? This is the disadvantage of sitting opposite you, Madge. You can see me writing things. <laughs> I was writing two thoughts. The first is, is about um, not forgetting the importance of management as we talk about leadership. Uh, so leadership and management are two subtly different things. Um, but as we go through the transition that Gary spoke, spoke about, good management is going to be really important. Um, doing things right uh, and, uh, ma and managing all of the resources that we have effectively. There's a bit of a tendency in, the, in difficult times to focus on the 3% savings or the 5% savings. And actually the right thing to do, I think, is to try and make sure you spend the 100% of what you have as effectively as you, as you can. And then just directly to respond to your question, Madge, about whether financing is a group thing, I think it absolutely is. Most of the expenditures that healthcare systems have result directly from clinical decisions. And so if, if your whole physician leadership and clinical leadership don't understand the financial environment, um, you're likely to be in some serious difficulties. May I ask you, um, you don't have to speak for the entire globe, but to what extent do you feel that this discussion today is also very, very relevant uh, for leaders, for your successor uh, in Scotland, in many other countries uh, that are focused on improvement and uh, really walking through a lot of these issues as well? I, th I think that this... Um you would be having much the same conversation as we're having today with a group of leaders in, in Europe, 
in um, the Asia-Pacific region, in most parts of the developed world, I think you would be having the same set of discussions about a common set of challenges around um, a new economic environment, a new set of demographic and epidemiological challenges, um, the increasing pace of change uh, and um, people having to make sense of all of that and put their organisations in a in the best possible place to respond to those challenges, anticipate them where you can, uh, and then thrive in that new environment. Thanks very much. There was a question earlier. I think uh, it could – let me go back to Lee, and maybe, Gary, you might weigh in on this as well, about both the pace of change and managing that pace of change, which I think is a very interesting uh, issue, as well as knowing when the organization or how the organization is set up for change. Uh, Lee, do you want to s- speak to that um, in terms of either what you're learning on that and what maybe some of the challenges are? be glad to. The the pace of change is important, and I know when we announced that we were going to start the commercial ACO, uh, we we said we're open to suggestions, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but, you know, very quickly there were over 2,000 really good ideas for opportunities to, you know, improve the health of the population and to uh, enhance efficiency. And it became very evident that we needed to be very focused and had a very disciplined process uh, to identify a handful of opportunities and basically say we're not going to look at anything else until we've executed on these and we've learned from them. Uh, and we, we built uh, a, a council that, that met monthly and really became the, the sounding board and the decision team for where are we going to focus resources, what are we going to invest in, and how are we going to manage it. Uh, and then the next, uh, you know, fork in the road was when we were uh, given the opportunity to participate in the Medicare Pioneer Program. And I remember being in Baltimore in the middle of uh, November, and they wanted to sign contract the first week of December. And We had a lot of questions, and we already had uh, five months of no, we had uh, 10 months of experience in the commercial ACO and lots of uh, learnings and, and need to make changes with the payer. And we very deliberately said we aren't going to start in January. And uh, we called CMS and explained why and said we'll consider Medicare shared savings because we want to go down that road uh, and it's the right thing to do. But starting in January might have, you know, overwhelmed the organization and instead uh, we waited till the next July and participated in Medicare shared savings rather than Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a good, uh, really, uh, illustration uh, of all of that. Gary, anything you might want to add? Uh, I know you alluded to also the pace of change, that kind of managing. Um, any Anything you might want to add to Lee's uh, example there? Maybe just one other thought, because, again, each of the leaders could articulate that they thought that was an important part of leading the organization. What struck me was um, that they, they used the term listening to the organization. And so many of these leaders, when they were out with presentations, they were out visiting groups and out, again, showing this sort of visible leadership presence, 
we're also listening to try to ascertain, you know, are, are the mental models beginning to change? Are, are we ready for the next step? Um, if we move now, would we be getting ahead of the organization? So this idea of, of a leader as a listener was something I heard over and over again. Okay, very, very in- interesting concepts. Um, Derek is helping me out here, kind of following uh, the chat. Um, how have people practices reconciled the ambiguity of innovation? Um, so innovation uh, and managing the pace of change, I don't know. It's a, it's an, it, these questions are getting deeper by the, by the scroll here. Uh, Derek, is that one you might want to uh, tackle? Yeah. It, um it just resonated with me, Madge, because we've spent some of this this morning at IHI thinking about our approach to innovation. Uh, and we were describing innovation as the bridge that connects um, invention and improvement. Uh, and so my sense is that as the pace of change increases, the importance of, uh, of being able to develop innovative approaches to those uh, rapidly changing challenges becomes even more important. And so I, I, I think a, a key part of what leaders are going to have to do in the future is to be innovative or to, to, to find people who are innovative in their team. Uh, and, to, um, and I think there's a duty on us all as leaders um, to share the learning of those innovations. And I think that's an important uh, thing that IHI can do. Somebody is being very, very culturally consistent is asking if you can speak up a wee bit. I can. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's trying not to overwhelm. Let me uh, – a quick comment here uh, from, from John, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uh, go back right to our, our discussion here. John? All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, well, effective leadership is a uh, big part and can be a big part of the puzzle for organizations that are working to improve quality and lower costs and enhance the patient experience. This February, IHI invites you to be part of the Executive Quality Academy, which is a seminar designed to help executives and their teams accelerate improvement and meet the challenges of today and tomorrow. We've built new solutions and avenues for success based on the experience of hundreds of healthcare organizations, including learning from organizations pursuing the IHI triple aim inside the hospital and beyond its walls. For more information, visit IHI.org slash EQA or email us at info at IHI.org. Thank you, John. Um, Andrea, I'm going to turn to you uh, on this, but everyone's welcome to jump in. There was an earlier comment about wondering about the application of a lot of what's being discussed today uh, to leaders uh, of all stripes, uh, chief medical officers, uh, leaders in the community and social services. Somebody here is asking about nursing uh, and leadership here. Uh, and any kind of general thoughts at all about the relevance and application of of, of what's being learned uh, as we sort of look across uh, a, a lot of these roles and functions? Oh, that's a very good question. I saw it too. The, um, the approach that we've taken of high-impact leadership behaviors is really applicable to leadership everywhere. We've distilled those behaviors from talking with all kinds of leaders, not just physicians and not just in the hospital, even good community leaders. We even learned from community organizing. Um, and I think if you take a look at them again when you have a chance, you'll see that they, that almost anyone who's leading anything from a student group to um, a big multinational corporation, 
that's trying to go through some big transformation can understand more about what they could do to be as effective as possible. The question also uh, referred to the idea of what do CMOs and CNOs have to do with the health of a population. And it's our view that until people even in the hospital who are only thinking about patients most of their time start to think about the community and the patient and the boundaries that they need to cross, it's going to be hard to take care of a population. And once they start thinking that way and start adopting those behaviors, no matter where you are, you'll be better at thinking about the health of a population and the bigger picture. Okay, thanks. Uh, Lee, anything that you might want to say about sort of the learning as as you've looked across your organization at sort of the different roles and functions people are in? I see some folks are, you know, still sort of wondering, or do we really understand, you know, how, how we get physicians on board, that kind of thing. Um, anything you might want to add to Andrea's remarks? I think the comments that it applies to all disciplines are are right on. And uh, one of the early changes we made in nomenclature, we've stopped using the term discharge. Uh, There's transition to care, but, you know, the great majority of our caregivers and advocates have been inpatient focused. And just to help them start to appreciate uh, that they need to be thinking about connecting their patients into the next level of care, and the reality is an inpatient experience in most cases is a failure of, you know, somewhere upstream in the system and to start to look at that. Most of our physicians, uh, not surprisingly, have been refreshed by the approach and, and recognize that it's, it creates an alignment that allows them to do many of the things that they went into medicine for uh, to better uh, serve their patients and not get hung up in the hamster wheel spinning uh, faster and faster, uh, but it also is creating lots of stresses and tensions as uh, we reduce admissions and readmissions and shorten length of stay. Uh, there's less business in the inpatient arena, which means fewer jobs. And you know, communicating that in a positive manner and keeping a workforce engaged uh, is, is an everyday challenge. Okay. Well, Lee, um, I think what we're going to do, thanks for those comments. Uh, what a rich also chat discussion, and I do want to remind everybody uh, that you can download that uh, as you get off the show today. You'll be prompted to do so. You can also ask for it from info at IHI.org, and the chat gets posted to our website tomorrow. I think what I'm going to do uh, is, now that we've heard from Lee, I'm going to go around the horn for some sort of final remarks. Um, uh, I don't know. You're... Fielder's choice, what you feel like uh, saying. Um, one of the things on my mind is sort of training and kind of future leaders, uh, the leaders who are there now, uh, getting those folks to step up and sort of beginning to show uh, those uh, folks who might be leaders uh, in the future uh, what the models are. But feel free to address anything. I think, Gary, I'll, I'll start with you and then Andrea and uh, Derek, just some final thoughts for today. Yeah, maybe one final thought. Again, on this idea of it's really about leaders throughout the organization. You know, these these uh, high impact leadership behaviors, things like being person centered, really being engaged at the front line, being transparent, thinking outside the boundaries. Uh, those are things really that can be done throughout at all levels of the organization. And and if if you think back to some of the the, the teaching of Edgar Schein and others, uh, those those 
strongest culture embedding mechanisms really are what individual leaders do, what are their actions, how do they act under stress. Um, and so this notion of, of leadership behaviors as being a strong way to drive the culture to be successful in the long run really is something that can be done throughout the organization. So I, I'd probably leave with that, Matt. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Gary. Andrea? Uh, I guess my uh, comment has to do with what we do with these white papers. Um, my co-authors, Steve Swenson, Michael Pugh, and Chris McMullen, and I put this together with some great observations and a great opportunity to talk to smart and talented people. But the, the work has only begun because once we put it out, we want to understand if it's useful, if it's helpful, other people are having different experiences. So this is kind of a watch this space request. If you have different ideas or different experiences to share, we're hoping to learn about those as well and strengthen our knowledge over time. Thanks, Andrea. And folks uh, who are going to the forum or who might still be thinking about it can uh, pick up on some of this content there. And then uh, the white paper will be out in mid-December. And this show will, of course, be archived for tomorrow. We invite you to tell others about it. Um, Derek, some final thoughts for today. So, Madge, I thought I would finish with a... on an assets-based note. Uh, So there's quite rightly been some chat about um, engaging physicians or engaging nurses, and it's important that we pay some attention to the particular professional groups. Uh, But I think there are some things that every member of staff needs uh, as a leader and if they're going to to, uh, follow leaders. Uh, And uh, I can think of three off the top of my head. Firstly, if we have a clear vision for where we're going, Uh, that's likely to be important in engaging people regardless of their profession. Uh, Secondly, if we stick with it, if we have constancy of purpose, that's likely to uh, help people. And then there's a point I think that Gary made about the importance, particularly for clinical groups, but more generally of focusing on values, the kinds of things that brought people into the caring professions in the first place, and then reinforcing that con- uh, consistently and continually. Okay. All right. Well, I really want to uh, thank the wonderful audience today. Thank you, Derek Feely, Andrea Capsonell, Gary Yates, and Lee Sachs uh, for sharing. Uh, look forward to coming back to this discussion in various forms. Thank you all for your rich conversation, for speaking with one another on the chat. You're using it in exactly one of the ways that we intended, and we really appreciate that. Uh, we can continue that discussion uh, on Twitter, if you'd like, uh, include at the IHI in your tweets, uh, also on IHI's Facebook page. Jane Rossner routinely listens in here from IHI, and we'll throw up some remarks on IHI's uh, Facebook page, and you're welcome to chime in there. So as John alluded to, we're just taking a short break uh, for the holidays and our forum in December. We have some of our favorite and most popular uh, WIHIs at your disposal. You can find that through a link uh, on the homepage of IHI.org. Lots in store for 2014. Uh, really, I'm, I'm busy uh, as we speak uh, developing the shows for January and February, and um, I look forward to engaging with you all um, right into next year as well. Don't forget, to, you can download all this material. Don't forget about that survey. we like to know what worked for you today, what we could do better. Uh, check out all the 
the materials on the archive page. Uh, any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and you can always feel free to suggest future topics. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. They are Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, also Stephanie Moncayo from Northeastern. And uh, my hat goes off to all of you. Thanks again to our wonderful panel today. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.